Isn't that just an awesome passage that we get to hear from this morning? My name is Nathaniel. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, I'm part of the team here at BPCC, and I'll be unpacking this passage for us today. But first, let's take a moment, let's come before our Lord in prayer and ask that he will apply it to our hearts by his spirit. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to come together, Lord, to hear from your word, uh, and Lord, to have it applied uh, to our hearts by your spirit. Lord, I ask that you will work through me as I unpack this text, and Father, Lord, please work in all of our hearts. Uh, Lord, please shape us, please bring us to a greater appreciation of you and grow us to be more like you this morning. We ask this in your name. Amen. Now, you may be familiar with the Bongers. They're a part of our church family here at BPCC. Uh, And if you haven't been to their house yet, I need to warn you. They have a ferocious guard dog. Mickey is very, very scary. He is the dominant force of the Bongers' house. He stands guard over the house and its surrounds with an iron will. He judiciously warns any newcomers that they are trespassing on his property. As soon as you walk up, you know about Mickey. You know that Mickey is there. Everyone fears Mickey. Everyone knows that Mickey is in charge of the Bongers' house. Or at least Mickey likes to think so. Uh, This is Mickey. (laughs) Mickey is very enthusiastic, uh, but his confidence is greatly outweighed by his size. He does his absolute best to assert dominance over all visitors, but in reality, he is totally powerless. Uh, Small dogs are often like this. Uh, They they think they're much bigger than they really are. It's pretty funny, right? They go out full of confidence and enthusiasm. Yep, 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 yep. And and their target just sort of brushes them off or picks them up and gives them a pat because they're so cute. It's, It's not as intimidating as they think it is. And in today's passage, we see something very similar happening. The religious leaders in Jerusalem, they're jealous of all that the apostles are doing, and they want to shut down the spread of this new Jesus movement. But all of their power and pomp is just brushed aside by God. He keeps on growing his church regardless, because nothing and no one can stop God's plan for salvation. Now, we're in a sermon series titled, To the Ends of the Earth. We're in the first seven chapters of the book of Acts. Acts is the story of what happened next after Jesus' resurrection and ascension to heaven. It describes how God continues to grow his early church through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so far, we've continually seen God at work to powerfully draw many people to himself. And he's been primarily working through his apostles, The apostles are that small group of men who followed Jesus for the three years beforehand. They're now spreading the good news of Jesus, that Jesus is the savior of the world, that Jesus defeated death, and that Jesus offers forgiveness of sins and eternal salvation. Now, things started very well for the early church, but now this new group of Christians is hitting some roadblocks. Last week, we saw the trouble coming up within the church. Uh, hypocrisy and, and deception threatened to throw the church off course. But God cleared those obstacles away. And this week, we see a challenge from outside the church. These powerful religious leaders are trying again to shut down the apostles' teaching. But God brushes off their efforts as, as easily as we might brush off a little five-kilo Maltese Shih Tzu. Each time that they try to stop the apostles' preaching, 
the good news of Jesus just spreads further and further and further. And this passage is full of lessons for us today in a world which is still full of voices which want to hear the good news of Jesus silenced. There are three key scenes that we'll see in this passage today. The first is God's power. Second, God's purpose. And third, God's plan. God's power is the first scene. It paints a picture of how powerful and mighty God is as he works through signs and wonders done through the hands of his apostles among his early church. Now, the start of verse 12 that we just heard in the NIV translation is a little bit misleading. Uh, Directly translating the original says, through the hands of the apostles were happening many signs and wonders. Because Luke is not implying that the apostles are are somehow superheroes. God hasn't granted them powers to go and do what they want. Rather, God is front and center working through the hands of his apostles. They're telling the good news of Jesus. They're telling people about the salvation that he's found only in Jesus. And God works powerfully through their hands as they do so. On Wednesday night, uh, I was over in the youth shed in a room full of guys who were desperately hoping that God would work miracles through the hands of the Maroons. It did not happen, as you probably know. The mood was crushed. Anyone with hopes in the Queensland side was deeply disappointed. Uh, What we needed was hands which could work miracles with the ball. Did not get that. It just got worse and worse, especially from half-time. Maybe there are some people here in church today driven to church in despair from Wednesday night. Without God's power, the apostles would have been just as ordinary as the Maroons were on Wednesday night. But by God's power, they're doing great signs and wonders, particularly in the form of healings. There's healings all through that, that first section there, and that naturally leads us to the question... If God was doing healings and these these crazy cool signs to kickstart his early church, why don't we see that all the time today? Maybe you're wondering, I prayed for that and God didn't do it. Why is that the case? If God is capable of performing all these amazing signs and wonders, why don't we see them as often today? Now, Adam has addressed this thoroughly in past weeks, so I'm not going to repeat all of that. But if you missed that and you've got questions, I'd really encourage you to head to bpcc.com.au later on this afternoon. Check out the past sermons in this series. But just to recap, the miracles proved that the apostles' message and their ministry was from God. And these signs, they exist to point to the greater eternal healing which all followers of Jesus will experience. As many of us here in our church family will testify, God can and does continue to work through miraculous signs. But it's not always going to be the case. They aren't guaranteed. I really appreciated how Adam summarized this reality. Healing is possible in this life, so pray. Healing is not guaranteed in this life, so trust. Healing is promised in the next life, so hold on. 
We also see here that the believers used to meet together in Solomon's Colonnade. What a strange name. Solomon's Colonnade was a covered area on the east side of the huge temple complex in Jerusalem. So we've got the city of Jerusalem, massive temple complex up there on the top right-hand corner. We're looking down on that now. This covered area all along the right-hand side is Solomon's Colonnade, off to the side in one of the most significant parts of the ancient world, um, but off, off to the side there, still within easy eyeshot and, and reach of the temple authorities who are trying to shut down this Jesus movement. And being in, in such open space was, was a bit intimidating for people who weren't totally set on following Jesus yet, uh, whether it was because of the threats from the Jewish leaders against the, Jew, against the Jesus movement or, or maybe because of the demise of Ananias and Sapphira that we heard about last week. Anyone who was on the fence was staying away from that public meeting spot. But word spread quickly about the miracles which God was doing through the hands of the apostles, in particular, Peter. We read, people brought their sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. In fact, news is spreading outside of the city as well. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. God is doing mighty works to kickstart his early church, and things seem to be going really well for them. However, trouble is brewing. Verse 17, we, we read, the high priest and his associates were filled with jealousy. And it reminds us that they are Sadducees. Now, Sadducees were a large sect of Jewish leaders at the time. Uh, they were in power over, over the Jewish leadership structure, and they did not believe in anything like angels or spirits or resurrections, so like everything that the, that the apostles were proclaiming. They particularly disliked Jesus' message about this whole resurrection thing and, and angels at the tomb. And they're filled with jealousy because the disciples are getting all of the attention from the people and, and all of the power from God, which they thought that they deserved. So they have the apostles arrested and they throw them in jail. But God doesn't want them in jail. He wants them out there telling people about Jesus. And so God throws in a funny twist of irony as he releases them and sets his plan in motion again. Uh, he sends an angel, which their captors, the Sadducees, don't exist, to free them, to let them out of the prison, and off they go on their way with the command to go and tell all the, tell all the people the words of this new life. God wants his apostles out there telling people about the truth, about the life that is found only in Jesus. Through this section here, God's power is on display. When an obstacle comes up, God just brushes it aside because God is far stronger than any human power. There's nothing which our God cannot do. And it's easy for us to lose sight of this. Uh, I, for one, am guilty of acting as if God isn't in control, uh, as if he doesn't do things, as if, as if he needs me to go out there and do them for him. Um, I've even found myself in ministry trying to do things for God's kingdom but trying to do them out of my own intelligence, out of my own ability, out of my own strength. It's so easy to forget that we serve the God who is in control of the whole world, of, of everything. Is that something which perhaps you're starting to forget? 
Are you starting to forget that God is in control of your life? Uh, are you tempted to try and do things in your own strength, in, in your own power? We sometimes don't expect God to act powerfully. Sometimes we don't expect God to, to do things, and so we just don't ask him to. Now, God isn't a genie in a, in a bottle, right? He, he doesn't just do anything we want him to do. But he does hear our prayers, and he does answer them in line with his will. He calls us to follow him, and he equips us to do that. So when obstacles arise, we can pray and we can trust because our God is in control. Now, we've seen a clear display of God's power, but what is God trying to do? What is he seeking to achieve? Well, this is what we have explained in the next section, God's purpose. So the apostles, they leave the jail and and they go down to the temple at the crack of dawn, but this time they don't go to Solomon's colonnade, the normal meeting spot. Instead, they go to the temple courts, which is the large area surrounding the temple itself, just as the angel commanded them. So we can see here that he got the Jerusalem, we've got the, the temple complex up the top there, and they've gone from being in the colonnade off the side, and they're now standing in the middle of the temple courts. Everybody going to the temple has to go through them. They're right in the middle of everything. The chief priests have tried to shut down this news about Jesus, but instead it is being proclaimed even more prominently. It's being spread even further. Now, as the apostles are in the middle of the temple courts preaching about Jesus, the high priest and his associates are gathering together the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin is the council of religious bigwigs who are in in charge of everything. And they send some guards down to the prison to fetch the apostles. And we have here another moment of comedic irony as, as God laughs at people who try to oppose him. The priests and the whole Sanhedrin, you know, they're assembled in all their pompous authority. They're ready to crush this upstart Jesus movement and these silly followers. But meanwhile, the movement is being spread right in the middle of the temple courts of their own massive temple complex. So the officers march up to the prison, find it securely locked with the guards at the doors. But when they get inside, it's empty. The apostles are gone. It reminds me of that scene in Finding Nemo. Do you know the one, you know, the fish are all trapped in a dentist's, a de- a dentist's fish tank and, and they have an escape plan. It all rotates around the tank getting very dirty and then having Nemo escape while it's being cleaned. But on the morning of the planned escape, Peach the starfish wakes up, happy, ready to go, singing, today's the day, the sun is shining, the tank is clean, the tank is clean. Same sort of thing, the jail is locked, the guards are at the doors, the room is empty. The room is empty! How could this happen? So the apostles rush back to the Sadducees. They bring back their report and they say, uh, we we read there, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. So there they are. They've gathered the whole council. They're scratching their heads. They're going, where on earth were those rascal apostles have gone to hide in this whole big city? When in comes a messenger. Look, the men that you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. So off dashed the captain and the officers to get the apostles again. God has thoroughly humiliated the high and mighty religious leaders. He makes a laughing stock of their attempts to try and stop him. It calls to mind Psalm 37 where it says, The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. I really appreciate this summary we get from scholar Albert Moller, Jr. He writes, 
The ironies of this story are evidence of God's sovereign hand at work. This passage shows us that nothing can befall God's people if he does not ordain it. God can turn the greatest powers of this world into bumbling fools who fear the very people they rule. God can send angels to open prison doors to ensure that his gospel continues to be proclaimed. God's plans cannot be stopped and the advance of his kingdom cannot be thwarted and so his people must not be silenced. God works in all sorts of ways, but his plans cannot be stopped. I've spoken to many people, some here in our own church family, who have tried to avoid God's purpose in their lives for a long time. Maybe you're one of them. Maybe this rings a bell in your own faith journey. Maybe you're still trying to evade God, whether he's calling you to trust in him or whether he's calling you to express that in a particular way. Maybe you wish that you could ignore him, but he just keeps on chasing you down. Our God cannot be stopped. He will fulfill his plans. Maybe there are other people who are trying to stop you from following God. Maybe you're feeling discouraged at the moment, or you do sometimes feel discouraged at all the opposition that you face when you try to faithfully follow Jesus. God laughs at anyone who tries to stand in the way of his plans, and he is with us as we follow him. Meanwhile, the high priest still hasn't learned his lesson. Uh, He has managed to regain his composure by the time the apostles finally arrive, and he's ready to deal with them. Verse 26, "'We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name,' he said. "'Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching "'and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood.'" Notice how he's trying to distance himself as much as possible from anything that has to do with Jesus. Not only does he try to imply that the Sanhedrin, who a couple of months earlier publicly sentenced Jesus to death, is innocent of Jesus' blood, but he won't even mention the name of Jesus. He's scared. He's he's still trying to fight, though. But Peter and the other apostles aren't going to stop telling people about Jesus. In fact, their response is to tell the Sanhedrin about Jesus. Why have they not obeyed the rulers? We must obey God rather than human beings. You'd think that's a foolproof argument to an assembly of religious leaders. They say this God, the same God of their ancestors, the God of Israel, raised Jesus up from the dead. Jesus has been raised to the right hand of the Father so that he might bring his people to repentance and forgive their sins. The disciples are witnesses of this, and as they say, so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. That's a very pointed comment, given that none of the religious leaders there had received the Holy Spirit. The reason for the apostles' teaching, that that message they state there, that that motivation to talk about Jesus is the same reason for our teaching today. The same reason we're gathered here as a church family. We share this same good news about Jesus, that through him we can repent and find forgiveness for our sins. That there is a true life to be found in the name of Jesus. And we want to share that. 
It is the purpose of God that the good news of Jesus would be spread. And if we're followers of Jesus, then he calls us to take part in that. We've talked about God's power, that his plans cannot be thwarted. And God's purpose is for his people to spread this message of repentance and forgiveness of sins. He worked in his apostles by his spirit to achieve this. And that same spirit is given to us, along with the same command to tell others. So when we face the prospect of scary conversations at work tomorrow, or possibly friends at school or uni who, who laugh when, we, when they hear about our faith, who find that ridiculous, we can boldly share this good news of repentance and forgiveness. And we can fully trust in God to use us to achieve his plans for salvation. And his plan is what the final section shows us. In a very unsurprising turn of events, the Sanhedrin do not like being told that not only are they going to be ignored, but that they are disobedient to the very God they claim to be experts in. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. Fortunately, God can't be stopped, even by a bunch of guys with bad tempers. A Pharisee named Gamaliel stands up. Pharisees were a different religious group to the Sadducees who were in control. The Pharisees were a bit more open to the idea of resurrection and angels, and Gamaliel was one of the most influential Pharisees of that generation. We actually read about him in a lot of literature uh, from, from Jews at the time. He has the apostles sent out so he can make a point in private. And the point he makes is quite a good one. He notes that there have been many others before Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah. Uh, he gives the examples of Judas and Judas, different Judas. His point here is exactly the reason why you've probably never heard of Judas and other Judas. Because all these false messiahs, they were killed, and their followers eventually melted away. Their movements petered out and lost momentum or got absorbed into other movements. So his argument makes sense. Why bother risking a riot by killing the apostles? If the resurrection was just a made-up human story, this Jesus movement would not last very long at all. It'll peter out soon enough. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. The fact that we are here today demonstrates that the good news of Jesus really is from God. Despite all odds, the church continued to grow and spread across the entire world. When God is behind something, it cannot be stopped. Now, Gamaliel probably didn't actually think that this Jesus movement was from God. He was probably more worried about risking a riot. But his logic does persuade the Sanhedrin, or at least in part, uh, after the embarrassment of the morning, they're not going to let the disciples go off scot-free. So they give the apostles a flogging, probably 39 lashes instead of a death sentence. Command them not to speak in the name of Jesus, like that'll do anything, and send them off on their way. And so the disciples, bloody and, and sore from the flogging, they go out on their way, grumbling against God, angry that God would allow such an injustice. Oh, that's not it. Um, they go on their way, calling up their lawyers so they can sue the Sanhedrin for a miscarriage of justice. That's, that's not it either. Um, they pull out their phones and they create a petition to get the high priest fired because he's not doing a good job. Nope, that's not it. 
They plan to leave burning bags of poop at the Sadducees' doorsteps. Nope, that's not it. What do they do? Verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering for the name. I wonder if they went out remembering or reminding each other of the blessing which Jesus had spoken. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Historically, when we look at church history over the last 2,000 years, there's a clear trend God's church grows the most when it faces the toughest opposition. That is to say, when the going gets tough, our God gets going. And that is certainly true of what happens next as well. Following this, the apostles never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. And now that message goes even wider. They are in the temple courts and from house to house. They're no longer just in Solomon's colonnade. They're no longer, no longer just in the temple courtyards. They're out throughout the entire city, house to house, proclaiming the good news of Jesus. This good news is spreading, and Jesus' command is starting to be realized. That command that he gave them before he ascended to heaven, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on, me, on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They started in a little house in Jerusalem, and now the good news has filled the whole city. And in the next couple of chapters, we're going to see how God uses human efforts against him to expand his good news of Jesus to the entire surrounding region. Spoiler alert. Greater opposition will come, and it'll do nothing to stop God. From the city, to Israel, to the Roman Empire, to the whole world, to Bray Park, Australia, God has been achieving his purposes in the face of human opposition ever since. And every attempt to stop him has just been incorporated in as part of his plan. This Jesus movement really was from God, and anyone who tried to fight it really was fighting against God. Now, we have it a lot easier in Australia today. We're a long way from getting state-sanctioned beatings just for telling people about Jesus. But the opposition that we push against comes in far more insidious ways. Comfort and temptations pull us away from Jesus. Social pressure tries to silence us. We often hear from churches in other countries who are facing violent persecution and a regular point that stands out to me is that they say they are praying for us, praying that we would stay strong, praying that we would resist these temptations because sometimes it's harder to resist comfort than to fight opposition. We can so easily be tempted to add just a little bit more, just a little bit more to our investments, just a bit more certainty. A house, just a little bit bigger, just one more extra room. A holiday, just a little bit nicer. One more star on the, on the hotel. And all of a sudden, our lives are all about personal comfort instead of following Jesus. 
but perhaps this persecution is increasing. Maybe our country is going to start violently repressing Christians as well. Maybe I'll be thrown in jail for preaching about Jesus. Are we going to face beatings as well? I've, I've often been told by people older than myself who have been watching the trends in Australia, and they say that I should expect hard persecution in my lifetime. Quite possibly the case. Maybe we are leaving this very rare point in world history where following Jesus faithfully has been culturally acceptable. And if that's going to happen, then I say, bring it on. Bring it on, because I serve a God whose purposes cannot be stopped. And I know that the more opposition I get to telling people about Jesus, the more effective that message is going to be. The more opposition we get as a church to following him, the more vibrant our church family is going to be. I know that because God says that and because I look across 2,000 years of God's faithfulness to his church and that has always been the case. So my prayer is not that God will keep me safe from physical beatings or from physical violence or suffering for following Jesus. My prayer is that God will keep my courage strong, that he will keep me from wavering and that he will use me to grow his kingdom no matter what the circumstance is because I know that he will do that. Now, we don't know if Gamaliel ever accepted Jesus as the savior, but a young student of his named Saul definitely did. He later became known as Paul, and God used him to write these words. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Jesus Christ who died, more than that, was raised to life and is seated at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, how encouraging is this? God is for us. God isn't limited by human power. He doesn't get absolutely crushed by the enemy team on a Wednesday night. He always wins the victory. We are fully safe in God because if he is for us, nothing can be against us. Nothing can separate us from him. Nothing can drag us away from his love. If you're not a Christian, maybe you're still on the fence or, or maybe you've decided it's not worth it, can I encourage you respectfully to seriously reconsider? God is real. He is far stronger than any human opposition. This, this message that he started spreading the good news of Jesus in a small house in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago has not been stopped since. 
God has wiped away all opposition. God has thwarted all plans to stop him. And so we can sit here on the other side of the world 2,000 years later and hear this same good news. If he is holding on to you, he is not going to let you go. If he is calling to you, he is not going to stop. Because our God is far stronger, far mightier, far greater than any human power. 